It was the English playwright George Bernard Shaw who once made this remark. He said, Christianity might be a good thing if anyone ever tried it. Now, he was being rather sarcastic, but the point that this man made is actually a valid one. Those who claim to know Jesus Christ as their Lord, their Savior, ought to live by what the Lord Jesus taught. They should wear their Christianity in their daily lives by the way they behave, and they should strive to be obedient to all that the Bible teaches. And that's exactly what the New Testament says. However, there was a local church in the early days of Christianity that constantly had problems living out their Christianity, and that was the church of Corinth. From the very first pages of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, we see the apostle constantly correcting this church. In fact, everywhere you turn, he's correcting the Corinthians because there were so many things wrong in their behavior and in their attitudes. So he starts off by correcting them concerning the divisions and factions that were in the church. Now some said, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, but I'm of Christ. And he corrects them about their toleration of an unrepentant member of their congregation not excommunicating this man when they should have. He corrects them because they were taking one another to court with lawsuits, suing one another. He corrects them over their lack of love due to differences over liberty issues. He corrects their women because they were not submissive to their husbands. And he corrects them because they were not observing the Lord's Supper in the proper manner. And that brings us tonight to our study of 1 Corinthians 11. Because it's here in chapter 11 where Paul specifically addresses the Corinthians on the problem of how they were observing the Lord's Supper. So I invite you to turn there if you're not there already. It's been a number of weeks since we studied these verses, but the gist of what Paul is teaching is that starting with verse 17, the apostle explains to the Corinthians what they were doing wrong in their observance of the Lord's Supper. And he rebukes them for their selfishness, for their lack of love for those who were poor, financially poor, and probably slaves in the church. And they were selfish, unloving. Why? Well, because while this church combined the Lord's Supper with a common meal, known as a love feast or an agape feast, intended for all church members, they just put it together, they refused People in the church refused to wait for all the church members to arrive, specifically those who were poor slaves. So they did not arrive early, and those who were there early ate all the food, drank all the wine, and there was nothing left for the poor who came later. Instead, those who, as I said, arrived early, who tended to be the wealthy people in the church, gluttonously ate all the food, drank all the wine without waiting for the others to arrive. And thus the reason Paul writes, verses 20 through 22, therefore when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. He says, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. So Paul very clearly, notice, he very clearly tells them 
that by not waiting for the poor members of the church to arrive for the meal, they were despising, they were shaming their fellow believers in Christ. In fact, he says, because of their attitude, because of their behavior, they weren't really celebrating the Lord's Supper. I mean, they may have called it that, but it was just an empty ritual to them. The church was to gather to remember the sacrificial death of Christ for all believers. The Lord's Supper is a time to remember his love for us. It's a time to remember that by his death, we have all been made members of his family, and we are all partakers of the benefits of his death. So anything that we do at the Lord's Supper that lacks love for Christ and love for one another, it's not only disgraceful, but it contradicts the very spirit of the Lord's Supper, and that's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. They were observing the Lord's Supper, they said, but in name only, that's all, so that they made it a mere empty religious ritual. They may have called it, as I said, the Lord's Supper, but by their sinful attitude and behavior, they weren't actually observing the Lord's Supper, which was due to their lack of love for others. And that's where Paul rebukes them. But the apostle doesn't leave it there. One thing about Paul is whenever he rebukes or scolds a church, he always offers a remedy. He never just rebukes and moves on. He offers a solution, a remedy to the problem. And folks, that's exactly what he does here. Having told the Corinthians the wrong way that they were observing the Lord's Supper, Paul moves on and proceeds to teach them the right way to observe the Lord's Supper. He does this by going back to the start of this ordinance, the very night that Jesus was betrayed when he instituted the Lord's Supper, he turned the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper, and Paul reveals how the Lord originally explained the meaning of his supper and how it was to be observed. So he goes back to the original, he goes back to the first Lord's Supper, verses 23 through 26, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Jesus made it very clear that the Lord's Supper is to be a very solemn experience when the church remembers his sacrificial death for them. We are first to partake of the bread as a reminder that his body, Jesus said, was broken for us. But listen closely because this is important. It helps us to understand the true meaning, the true symbolism of the bread. See, when Jesus said that his body was broken for us, He illustrated what he meant by this by breaking the unleavened piece of bread and then he broke it with his hands, then he dispersed it. He he passed it around the table for all of the apostles to eat. That was what took place at the Passover meal and what took place at the first Lord's Supper. Now, the breaking of the bread did not mean that his body was to be broken in the sense that any of his bones would be broken during the crucifixion. And we know that because according to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 33 and 36, no bone of Jesus was broken, which was a direct fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But rather, the breaking of the bread by Jesus into smaller pieces so that others could eat it 
spoke, note this, of the unity of all believers in that all would share, all would be partakers of the benefits of his death on the cross, namely salvation for all. He passed the bread to all. That's exactly what the Corinthians were guilty of not doing. They were not doing this by excluding the poor people of their church from participating in the Lord's Supper and the Love Feast. The Corinthians were violating the very spirit of communion, which was to express the unity of all believers as the family of God as they participate, all of them, in the benefits of his death. Likewise, the cup of wine, the Lord explained, is a reminder that his blood was shed for us so that all believers, again, not an elite few, but all believers, not just the wealthy, could have the forgiveness of their sins and a new life in Christ. So this is the way that we are supposed to observe the Lord's Supper. It's to be a time when the entire church, not a fragment of the church, but the entire church comes together in order to specifically focus on remembering what their Lord did for them and securing their salvation. Therefore, any demonstration of sinful selfishness at the Lord's Supper is just totally out of order. It's totally inappropriate, and it's a contradiction of the meaning of this precious ordinance. The ultimate purpose, Paul said, of the Lord's Supper, he states this in verse 26, is to proclaim the Lord's death. Anything else that hinders this is totally irreverent. And so having told the Corinthians how they were wrong in the way they were observing communion with their sinful selfishness, and then he said the right way that they should be observing communion in a reverent manner that remembers Christ's death for all believers, Paul now proceeds to inform the Corinthians of the serious consequences of their sinful disobedience at the Lord's table and what to do in light of their sin. He does this by warning them of the danger of participating in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. We break in at verse 27. Therefore, so he connects what he's just said to what he's about to say now, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Let's stop there. Having just told the Corinthians how they had made a mockery of the Lord's Supper, Paul now tells them how serious this is. He tells them the consequences of their sinful attitude, their sinful behavior. And he describes their sinful attitude and sinful behavior as eating the bread and drinking the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. So what does he mean by this? What exactly is an unworthy manner? Well, first of all, it's important to understand what Paul doesn't mean by this. You see, when he speaks of being unworthy in light of taking the bread and drinking the cup, he isn't referring to us as being unworthy of the Lord's salvation. If that were the case, folks, nobody could ever observe the Lord's Supper because none of us will ever be worthy of Christ and salvation. All of us are unworthy sinners who do not deserve salvation. That's not what Paul's referring to. He's not talking about us being worthy. Of course we're not worthy. He's talking about observing the Lord's Supper, note this, in an unworthy manner. In other words, this is a reference to our attitude, to our our mindset, to our thinking when we come to the Lord's Supper. That's what he's talking about, the manner in which we partake of the Lord's Supper. So then, Again, I ask, what does Paul have in mind when he says that the Corinthians were guilty of observing the Lord's Supper in an unworthy 
manner. Well, I can tell you that the way this is usually understood is that the apostle is saying that we shouldn't come to the Lord's Supper with any unconfessed sin, that we must make sure that before we take the elements of communion, we confess and repent of any sin, any known sin in our lives. Well, that's certainly valid. Certainly none of us should take communion if we have known sin in our hearts, if there's sin that has not been repented of. That's certainly valid. However, the unworthy manner that Paul is talking about isn't sin in general. It's certainly right to confess any sin, but I don't believe that's what Paul has in mind. But rather, what he has in mind is the very specific sin of failing to demonstrate the unity of the church by excluding those poor members of the congregation from participating in the Lord's Supper. And you can see that this is exactly what Paul is referring to by what he will go on to say at the end of this section in verses 33 and 34. He said, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I'll arrange when I come. So this is the sin, folks, that Paul is addressing. This is the unworthy manner that he's referring to. These people were not waiting for all the members of the church to arrive so that they could participate in the Lord's Supper and thus demonstrate the great oneness, the great unity of all believers, rich and poor, free and slave, all in Christ. So the question is, how does this truth apply to us? You're sitting here, you're listening. How do you put this into practice? Since we no longer have a common potluck type meal in which we combine with the Lord's Supper, we don't do that. And therefore, we're not guilty of not waiting for people to arrive at church to eat together, to eat dinner together and have the Lord's Supper. So how do we apply this? Well, understand that the primary issue wasn't that the Corinthians didn't wait for the poor to arrive at church. The primary underlying issue is that they failed to have the right attitude concerning the unity of the church. They failed to understand and embrace that the body of Christ consisted of all members as equal and important and loved by the Lord. They failed in their lack of love for others that they felt were just beneath them in the church. They were not important. You didn't need to wait for them. They were poor. They were slaves. They're not as good as we are. We can be guilty of the very same thing. We don't have to have a, a potluck feast in order to be guilty of this. We can be guilty of the same thing by looking down upon other members, certain members of our church, perhaps because their skin color is different than ours, perhaps because they aren't native-born Americans, perhaps because they speak English with an accent, because their education, their financial resources, their social status are lower than ours. There can be any number of reasons why you might lift yourself up thinking that you're better than somebody else in the church. Likewise, we can be guilty of disregarding the unity of all believers in Christ by having feelings of ill will towards others in the church so that we, we do think that we're better than them. We think that we're more righteous. We think that our cause is, is right and they're wrong. You see, anytime you come to the Lord's Supper with anything but love in your hearts towards your fellow Christians, you're guilty of partaking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. This goes back to our attitude towards one another. 
So this means that before partaking of communion, you must make sure that your heart is right towards other believers. No animosity, no malice, no grudge, no resentment, no jealousy, no lack of forgiveness, and certainly no attitude of thinking you're superior to anybody else in the church. And this is critical because to have the wrong attitude towards another individual in the body of Christ, I want you to understand it's not a minor issue. It is such an important matter that as Paul states, as he continues in verse 27, that if you come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, you partake of the Lord's Supper, then notice what he says as verse 27 continues, you should be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now obviously, this is serious. These words convey something rather significant, very serious, that no Christian ever wants to be guilty of. So in what way could we be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord? Well, the implication of what Paul is saying is that if we have a certain sinful attitude towards other Christians and deny the unity of all believers in Christ, then we are guilty of mocking the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross. In other words, instead of proclaiming the Lord's death, which is the purpose of the Lord's Supper, we have denied the reality of his sacrificial death for all believers. It's as if we've actually taken our place with those who murdered, those who killed Jesus by treating the manner of his death as if it were meaningless. It's not important. This is a profound truth. This is a heavy thought. And it demonstrates the seriousness that the Lord puts upon our attitude towards our fellow believers when we come to the Lord's Supper. No true believer ever wants to be identified with those who crucified Christ. So what can we do to be careful that this is not true of us? Well, make sure that you have the right attitude towards other Christians. These are often the the primary struggles we have. Somebody crosses us, somebody says something wrong to us, we don't like the way they've handled this, and we get a grudge, and we don't want to talk to them, and we don't love them. So make sure that you have the right attitude towards other Christians, and that you never consider anyone beneath you in the body of Christ. One Bible teacher I read summed up the issue of what Paul is saying with these words. He said, The Corinthians' unworthy observance was no small matter. One can imagine them thinking that they had just been inconsiderate of their poor brothers and sisters in Christ. That much was true enough. Yet Paul insisted that something much worse was happening because remembering and proclaiming Christ is the purpose of the Lord's Supper. Violators actually sin against the body and blood of the Lord. That is to say their offense violates the central sacred purpose of the Lord's Supper, honoring Christ for the work of salvation. To sin against the body and blood is to sin against the very hope of salvation. They also sinned against the body and blood of the Lord by sinning against Christ's church, or more particularly against the poor Christians who were not granted admission to the Lord's Supper. To sin against those for whom Christ shed his blood and gave his body is to sin against Christ himself. So this is very clearly a serious sin. Therefore, we want at all costs to approach the Lord's Supper in the right manner, never an unworthy manner. And so as Paul continues, he tells us specifically how to avoid this sin. Verse 28, but a man must examine himself 
And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, Paul says that every time we are about to partake of the Lord's Supper, we must examine ourselves. And by that, he means we must give ourselves a self-examination, a test. We must scrutinize. We must inspect our hearts to see if there's any negative attitudes that we might have harboring against another Christian, or if we've been guilty of sinning against a fellow Christian. This is the context. This is what he's talking about. And only after examining your own heart, Paul says, are you spiritually able, are you spiritually qualified to partake of the Lord's Supper? So implied in Paul's statement is that if upon examining yourself, you detect any sinful attitude, any sinful treatment that you've had towards another Christian, then you must confess that as sin and you must repent of that as sin. Otherwise, you are guilty of disregarding the meaning of Christ's death, which is to provide salvation for all of his people, not just some of the body of Christ. And if that's the case, and you do not correct your sinful attitudes, but you still go ahead and you partake of the Lord's Supper, then Paul states that you will suffer the consequences Notice verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Now the apostle states that to partake of the Lord's Supper while still holding on to these sinful attitudes and behavior, especially towards other members of the church, will result in the Lord chastising you, disciplining you, spanking you, You see, the word judgment does not mean that God will eternally punish you or condemn you. This word in this context means that he'll discipline you as a father disciplines his child. The Bible is very clear that a child of God will never be condemned because Christ was condemned in our place. Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So he's not talking about judgment in the sense of judgment for our sin of an eternal nature. But out of love, out of God's heart of love, he does discipline his children for their sin. And in this case, Paul is referring to that very specific sin, which he calls in verse 29, not judging the body rightly. What he means by this is that When you come to the Lord's Supper but fail to recognize it for what it is, you fail to look upon the elements of the bread and the wine as representing the body and blood of Christ that was laid down for all his sheep. It's treating the Lord's Supper as if it were just another common event. You don't recognize it for it being sacred and special concerning the death of Christ. You're just going through the motions. You don't recognize that in dying, Jesus died for all of the elect, but you're treating some of his elect as if they're not important. What that tells us, folks, is the importance of each of us consciously thinking about communion before we partake of it, of focusing on the meaning of the Lord's Supper as a remembrance of Christ's death for us, And not treating the Lord's Supper as if it were just another church service. It is special. It is sacred. It should be treated as such. So you know that in a few weeks we'll observe the Lord's Supper on a Sunday morning, the first Sunday in December. So you have to come with your hearts 
right with the Lord and prepared. And don't treat it as just another Sunday. It is a special Sunday when we remember the sacred ordinance. But those who don't treat it as sacred, those who come to the Lord's table with a sinful heart attitude towards a fellow believer, will experience the chastisement, the discipline of the Lord. That is to say, God will not allow anyone to get away with treating the Lord's Supper improperly. He'll discipline them. And in verse 30, the apostle describes the specific ways that God had disciplined some of the members of the Corinthian assembly. Verse 30. For this reason, this reason that they violated this, this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Now Paul explains that this is the reason that many, not all, he didn't say all in the church, he just said the reason that many of the Corinthians had suffered physically so much. It was because of their sinful attitude, their sinful behavior in the way they approached the Lord's Supper. Their suffering was God's discipline on their lives. And Paul lists three specific ways that God had disciplined these folks. This is not an exhaustive list of the way God disciplines, but this is how he worked in the Corinthians' lives. Some people had experienced God's hand of discipline so that they had become weak And probably meaning that they had just lost energy, they lost zest and strength, they just became physically weak. Others, God had disciplined by them getting an illness, he said, by sickness. Meaning they had some kind of disease, some kind of illness, something that affected them. Something that was more than just weakness, though they probably were weak because of this illness, too. But this is an illness, this is a sickness they had. And others, Paul said, God had discipline with sleep. Sleep here is used, it's an euphemism for death. For death. He doesn't mean that God gave them a nap. They died. In other words, God put them to death for their sinful attitude towards their fellow believers and for the Lord's Supper. Now, listen, this doesn't mean that every time you feel weak, every time you're weary, every time you have an illness, or that every Christian who dies at a relatively early age is being disciplined by God. However, it's very easy to dismiss sickness and never think about this. Could this be God's discipline? So we ought to, whenever we're ill, whenever we're ill with a serious illness that just doesn't seem to go away, it would be wise to seek the Lord and to ask him to show you if this illness is a disciplinary measure against you, if God is trying to show you that there's some sin in your life that you have not addressed. So, not every illness is because of God's discipline, but we ought not to dismiss it that quickly either. We ought to at least seek the Lord and ask if there's something wrong. Or even better yet, avoid the possibility of being disciplined in the first place by recognizing your sin so that you can repent before the Lord disciplines you, which is exactly what Paul says in the next verse, verse 31. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged Paul simply means that if after examining our hearts, we discover that yes, there's some sinful attitudes there. Yes, I'm not right with my brother in Christ. I'm not right with my sister in Christ. And we then judge ourselves how? We confess our sin to God. Then God won't have to judge us by disciplining us. In other words, you can avoid the chastening of the Lord by dealing with your sin before God deals with your sin. But understand, if you don't do this, And God does discipline you. He has a purpose for this, which Paul explains in verse 32. But when we are judged 
We are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Paul says, when we are judged, meaning when God disciplines us, he does this so that we will not be condemned with the world of unbelievers. In other words, God's purpose in disciplining his children is for the purpose of causing us to repent of our sin. And he treats us this way so that he doesn't treat us the way he treats an unbeliever. How does he treat an unbeliever? Well, them he condemns. Them he, he deals with with eternal punishment for their sin, but not us. We're different. Listen, the fact that God disciplines you for your sin proves that you're a child of God. This is exactly what the writer to the Hebrews states in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 7. It's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which of all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So the purpose of God in disciplining one of his children is to bring us to repentance. That's different than how he deals with the unsaved. For them, it's judgment. They're condemned eternally. But that's not how God deals with our sin. He brings us to repentance through discipline. And that's a good thing. But listen, if you can continue in your sin, and there are just never any consequences for your sin, you just seem to get away with it all the time, then it does indicate that you're not a child of God. Because a child of God can't get away with that. God disciplines you, proving that he's your father, you're his child. So it is a good thing to be disciplined by the Lord because it proves that you are a true believer, and then this is the way God deals with true believers. But as I said, if you can get away with sin and nothing seems to happen of a negative nature in your life, it would indicate that you have never really come to faith in Christ, and God won't discipline you because you're not one of his. And having said all this, Paul closes then this section by summing it all up. He sums up the Corinthians' problem in partaking of the Lord's Supper and telling them how to solve this problem so that God doesn't have to discipline them. Verses 33 and 34. So then, my brethren, and this is his summation, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So you'll not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I'll arrange when I come. Now notice, Paul tells them to do two things to avoid God's discipline. Number one, he tells them that when they come together to eat their common meal, this love feast, and then partake of the Lord's Supper, they are to wait for one another. That's been the whole issue. In other words, the wealthy members of the church were to wait for the poor members to arrive at church before eating so that they could all eat together, demonstrating the unity of the body of Christ because Christ died for all of his people. This would be the way to honor Jesus as well as showing love for others by demonstrating this great oneness of all Christians, both rich and poor. 
Secondly, Paul said, to avoid God's discipline, if they're hungry, the apostle says, then you should eat at home rather than use the common meal and the Lord's Supper as the means of satisfying your hunger. Now, it's important that we understand the point that Paul is making. He certainly, as one thinks this through, certainly couldn't be telling those who were poor in the church to eat at home rather than use the common meal and the Lord's Supper to satisfy their hunger. And that's because they didn't have much at home to eat. That's why they were hungry. They're poor. This is probably the only decent meal on a Sunday that they could have. So they were hungry because they were poor and it wasn't their fault. So Paul is not addressing the poor in this verse. No, you see, those whom Paul was addressing and telling to eat at home, if they were hungry, those were the wealthy members of the church, the ones who were causing all the problem. And what he's telling them to do is eat at home to satisfy their hunger rather than come to church hungry and eating all of the food so that there's nothing left for the poor members to eat when they arrived. Folks, that's been the whole issue. And Paul starts with this and he closes with this. Understand this. The primary truth that Paul is teaching in these verses is that the Lord's Supper is a time that we remember the true meaning of the Lord's death. And not only did he die to save us, but he died to make us one with all the other members of the body of Christ. He died so that all of us would be partakers of the benefits of his death. Therefore, we are to treat one another with love, with honor, with respect. So make sure that your heart's attitude is right towards your fellow believer and that you treat each other properly. I close with these significant words from one commentator I read this week. He said, by and large, Protestants have encouraged our churches to focus on confession of our individual sins and thereby on our individual worthiness to partake of the Lord's Supper rather than on Christ. As a result, believers tend to approach the Lord's Supper timidly, tuning out the rest of the congregation so that they may get themselves right with God. The Lord's Supper is not so much an opportunity for all the members of the church to engage in personal piety at the same time, but for all the members of the church to experience together their relationships with Christ and with one another and to proclaim the gospel. Before we partake of the Lord's Supper, we need first to ask, how am I treating my brothers and sisters right now? Not what sins have I committed since my last confession. To put it a bit differently, Christ says to you, come, be with your family, not go take a bath. So this is really a message for believers, but if you have never repented of your sin, if you have never turned to Christ and trusted him as Savior and Lord, this would be the time to do that, and you can be part of the body of Christ. More significantly, you can be part of Christ. You can know him. You can know that your sins are forgiven. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we thank you for these magnificent words by the Apostle Paul. These are truths that stretch us, that perhaps we've never thought about it, that how we treat one another, our attitudes towards our brothers, our sisters in Christ, is so incredibly important, so serious, that there are serious consequences if we come to the Lord's table with an unloving heart. And Lord, as I mentioned this morning, the scripture never tells us that we are to expect others to love us 
it does tell us that we are to love others. We're commanded. That's our responsibility. So Lord, I pray for each one here who might be struggling with an attitude, a sinful attitude towards someone who's a Christian. I pray that that will be repented of, that they will see that Christ loves that person, that Christ died for that person, and that they need to follow their Lord in loving that person too. So Lord, I pray that your word will make an impact on our lives. I pray that we'll come prepared next month to partake of the Lord's Supper with the right attitude. And I pray, Father, for any here or who might be watching, if they've never trusted you as Lord and Savior, that today might be the day of their salvation. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.